right, good morning. All right. Today we start a new series um, that is entitled Abide. This is about five weeks or so. This word abide, I'm gonna, you're going to hear that word a lot today. It means to stay. That's the simplest form of that word. Last week I, I began our church's preaching path this year by reorienting us back toward one of the most basic truths of Christianity. If you remember back to that last week, which is the chief purpose for which God created the universe and specifically mankind, that's you and me. The chief purpose that he created us for is to reveal his glory to us and therefore be enjoyed by us. That simple truth is how we ought to think and feel and and live from. In fact, someone far greater and wiser than, than I, uh, a guy named, pastor named John Piper, uh, he's, he's coined a phrase, and it's, uh, it's, it's really good. I, I, I couldn't have come up with something better than this, and that is that God is most glorified in us. He's most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. We're designed, we're created, and God sustains us for his ultimate purpose, for everything in our lives to glorify him and promote his endless worthy and value, his supremacy. And the way we do that is by, pe- by being people who enjoy him, people who are satisfied by what he's done. Last week in that sermon entitled Dependence, Gratitude, and the Glory of God, I showed us from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 23, that God is independent creator, that we are dependent creation, and that he has intentionally designed us to have needs. That we are to recognize that we are dependent on someone else to meet our needs and satisfy our most essential desires. The need for food, the need for drink, for safety, for life, the desire for approval and friendship and inclusion, the desire for love, for friendship, for peace. These and many more, none of those are sinful desires that God resents you for wanting or needing. Instead, God designed us with those things in our hard wiring. And the reason he did that was so that he would then fulfill those needs. And in the fulfillment, we'd be satisfied him and he would be honored and glorified. Now, I I intend in this message, uh, in in that message, to set us all up for this sermon series, Abide. Uh, It seems fitting here at the beginning of our year, 2023, to reorient ourselves to who God is, to who we are, to what he has done, to what he's doing, and how we are to respond. So I want to start with the purpose for which God established us as a church. We repeat that purpose every week, every Sunday, as a beginning of our worship, and uh, our leaders behind closed doors when you don't see us working together or working independently, our leaders even prejudiciously We prejudiciously filter all that we lead our church in to make sure that it's under that purpose because we don't want to drift from what the Lord made us to be. What's that purpose? We make disciples of Jesus on the mission of Jesus for the glory of Jesus. We don't want to forget that. We don't want to drift from why God made us a church. But I also want, I think it's really crucial, it's necessary that we don't just assume we know what all those words mean or else we could become very, very lazy, just assuming Christian religious people who toss around a lot of biblical or religious words without actually living under their meaning. Specifically, we want to be unified in knowing what it is God wants us to do, what he's called us to do, and that is to make disciples. That's vital because if you don't know what a disciple is, then you don't know if you are one. All right? I want to kind of prove that point. I want to ask you a question. Are any of you, uh, anyone here know if you are a luthiery? Are any luthieries in here? And any, uh, any flautists? Do you, are there any duffers? Are you a lapidary? Do you know if you are a lapidary? What about a dispensationalist? If you don't know what that word means, you don't know if you are one or not. You don't know if you ought to be one or not. And uh, I'll just let you off the hook and tell you what some of the... A luthier is a guitar maker. A flautist is a flute player. A duffer is a salesman. A, a, a lapidary is a, is a jeweler. A dispensationalist is a heretic. I'm just kidding. If you know what that word means, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. The next five weeks or so, I want to spend some time with 
with one another. I want us to spend time and stay together here on this thinking and praying over what a disciple really is and finding it from God's word and not just coming up with church definitions, but Bible definitions. Now, over the years, I've offered a definition to us as a church of what a disciple is, but I don't think I've repeated enough. I don't think I've I don't think I've done that. I don't think we have done that. I don't think it's really gained the traction that it ought to. But here's what I've, here's what I've taught that a, that a disciple is. Here's the definition that we've had in the past. A, a disciple is an apprentice of Jesus who orients his life around three goals. To be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. That's a really great definition. It's good. I like it. Simple. Has, has, has the name Jesus in it a lot. I think that's a great definition, but... I think maybe, maybe one of the reasons why it hasn't quite taken root like it ought to or wanted it to was because I borrowed it from someone else and gave it to our church. And what I, what I think we ought to do maybe is to, is to define this word disciple together so that we can own it and let it grow deep roots in our minds and hearts and in our fellowship together. That we, we dive into this and you just don't get handed a definition of disciple, but we discover and define it together from the scriptures. So our primary scripture for this next several weeks is gonna come from the gospel of John, chapters 13 through 17, in which Jesus speaks with his disciples on the, on the last night uh, of his earthly life. And these are the things he chooses, chooses to share with his disciples before he goes to the cross and dies. So the last thing that you share, the last thing that you tell the people that you love before you go away for a long time or, or die that tends to be the most important, most vital things that you, you have to share with them. And so these are some of the most essential truths that Jesus wants his disciples to have. And, and he wants to set them, his disciples, up to live according to his purpose for them. So we're going to be shifting back and forth the next several weeks, back and forth, forward and backward through these chapters. But uh, today we'll start in chapter 15, and it, it was, if you wanted a chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse walk through the Gospel of John, several years ago I preached through the Gospel of John with our church. You can go back onto Spotify. You can find our archives of sermons there. You just search on Spotify, Restoration City Church, find our logo. Uh, it's not the green one. It's the, the red and black one, um, and you can go find that. So let me pray for, for us real quick. Father, draw us to the glory, the supremacy of your son Jesus. With the power of your spirit, transform our minds and hearts. Make us your disciples. Lord, teach us, lay hold of us, and never let us go. Amen. So what is a disciple of Jesus? You already heard one word. It's an apprentice. That's someone who spends time with an expert in a trade. They, they often live with them. They learn what this master does. They, they watch what their master does. Uh, they, they, they practice alongside of him until they can do the work that their master does. And they go about that trade. Now, a student could be a disciple. A disciple can be a, 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 someone who learns from a teacher. Often we, and I think, again, these are perfectly okay, that, that the disciple is a, is a follower. Back in Jesus' day, the teachers, the great teachers, the rabbis, they... Um, they had what were known as the Talmudin, which is disciples. And these disciples, they lived with their rabbi. Whatever he ate and drank, that's what they ate and drank. Where he slept, they slept. Where he went, they went. What he taught, they taught. The way he taught, he, they, they would teach the way he taught. They followed him around everywhere he went, all day and every day. And in Matthew chapter 11, we hear Jesus say, Hey, um, take upon yourself my yoke, for my burden is, uh, is light. That's discipleship language. A yoke is more than a wooden beam that connects two oxen together so they can do some work. In his day, a yoke is what you carry. It's the teaching of a rabbi that you then carried alongside of the rabbi until someday you became a rabbi and got disciples. So I want to get super clear, by the way. When I say disciple of Jesus, I mean a Christian. I mean a Christian. Not simply someone who has studied religion. Not simply someone who goes to church a lot and knows a lot about Jesus, and even likes him. I'm talking about a Christian, someone who belongs to Jesus, is saved, is born again, regenerated. I, I could ask, what's a Christian? But I don't think that's the, the most helpful approach at this time. I think, what is a disciple of Jesus? But I want to make sure it's a Christian. Now, are you a disciple of Jesus? Again, if we can't define this well, then we, we won't know very well if we are one. 
What does it mean to get saved, to, to follow Jesus, to obey Jesus, to enjoy him, to glorify him? So as we get closer to the text, I'm going to ask who's Jesus addressing in John 13 through 17. He's talking to his disciples. Sure, he's speaking to his disciples, 11 or 12 men who in real history he's talking to, but how can we as a church 2,000 years later, how can we just assume, oh, he's talking to them, he must be addressing us too. How do we know this applies to us and not just to them? Because of the way he prays in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, he's talking with his Father in heaven, and he prays for his disciples, and he prays for us. Here's what he prays. He says, he says, I pray also for them who will believe in me. That's us. Through their, that's disciples, words. So by virtue of Jesus being their Lord and Master and ours, we are made his disciples. So we are the people who are or might become, and we're invited to be his disciples. Let's put our eyes on chapter 15, but I want to start, strangely enough, in verse 8. John 15, verse 8. By this, Jesus says, by this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, I want to start there. Look at, that, look at that phrase, that last little bit. And so prove to be my disciples. Do you want to know if you're with me? Do you want to know if you're one of my disciples? How could anyone tell that you're one of my disciples? By this. What is this this? He's referring to a bunch of things that he just said in verses 1 through 8, which we're going to go back and catch up on. But how will you know if you're a disciple? There's a way to know. There's a way to, to know. There's a way people will know. So let's put her in verse and go back to verse 1 and find out what we're supposed to what defines and what shows and what demonstrates and proves out a, a disciple. John 15, verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, which is obviously a metaphor. He's a human being and he's God, right? But I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. All right, this is a, this is a relationship that we need to keep in our heads the rest, the rest of this passage. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the son of God, he calls himself, I am the true vine. And then he says that his father, the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, he calls him the vine dresser. He owns the vineyard. He keeps it. He protects it. He waters it. He feeds it. He tends to it. Which, by the way, this is a, this is, Jesus is referencing the prophet Isaiah from hundreds and hundreds of years before. And his disciples would have known that he's making that reference. Except they would have like really keyed in because Jesus is doing something and, and, and taking from Isaiah and moving into a place that Isaiah wasn't talking about. Because in Isaiah's prophecy, when he's talking about vineyards and vines and branches, the branches are God's people and they're fruitless. They have no fruit. They bear no fruit. But here, when Jesus talks about the true vine and the, the vine keeper and the branches, he says that his people, he's appointed them and empowering them to be fruitful. And in Jesus' day, days, like vineyards were, were grape farms, just like they are today, uh, and they're meant to produce primarily wine, right? Romans were eating grapes, but uh, like the, the ancient Jews weren't necessarily into eating grapes. They wanted the wine from the grapes. That was the, that was the major prize. And in that day, the, the wine, was, wine was really important. It was very valuable. It symbolized life and celebration, merriment, enjoyment, peace. So... Let's see where he, what he does with this, with this analogy, this illustration. In verse 2, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, my father, the, the vine dresser, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Now, he's carrying the metaphor forward. We've got to keep our brains inside of it. What is, what is this fruit? All right? Each of these illustrations, these metaphors, they're, they're pointing to something literal. That's the purpose of a metaphor is to take this literal thing to point at an actual literal thing, right? What's fruit? I want you to think of two different things, but both at the same time. Good luck. Uh, I want you to think of Galatians chapter 5, in which you get this list of when the Holy Spirit is at work in a believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit produces fruit in the life of that person. Things like love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And we often think that those are things that God produces in our lives 
for us. And that is somewhat true. We often think like this, man, I feel horrible. I'm in a bad mood. I'm really rotten. I'm I'm just getting so frustrated and impatient with everything and everyone. I I really, I need the the Holy Spirit to produce the, the fruit of patience in me so I can be more peaceful. To go, man, I've been overdoing it with wine and food, and I'm really wrecking my body, and I'm, I'm, I'm messing up my life with it. I, I need the spiritual fruit of self-control. Now, that's true, but that's, if that's all that this fruit is and what it does, then we are missing the essential nature and purpose of God bearing fruit in our lives. Because instead, these are fruits of God's spirit, which he plants in you for your sake, and therefore for the greater sake of others. There's a reason you, you need the Holy Spirit to bear the spiritual fruit of patience in you, not simply so that you can be calm and not so wigged out and frustrated and angry all the time with other people, but so that you don't hurt other people. So you can be kind to them. So you can live at peace with them. So you can love them and minister to them. These fruits aren't given to you for you, but they're given to you for you so that you can give them and share them with other people. The other way I want you to think about this spiritual fruit is throughout the New Testament, we see that fruit is often uh, basically equated with, uh, with good works, good things that God's people are supposed to do as they obey him. These aren't the kind of works that you can do so that God might approve of you and let you into heaven. You did the good things, you're, I'll put you on my team. Right? You did what I said, now I'll, I'll do my part. I'll bring you into my kingdom, I'll take you to heaven. Instead, these are the, the sorts of good works that God performs in you and through you for the benefit of God's people and for the lost. So they might believe in Jesus. They might see his glory and honor him by enjoying him. Now, for a second, Jesus says that those who bear this kind of fruit, he says, they prove to be my disciples. Remember verse 8? And so prove to be my disciples by this, by this fruit. Now, I want to make sure we understand this correlation properly. This is not Jesus saying, bear this fruit and I'll make you my disciple. What he is saying is, be my disciple. And you'll know if you're my disciple because the evidence of that reality is going to show up in the kind of fruit you bear. Other people will be able to know that you really do belong to me. You're my disciple. I want to ask you this. Do you you see that kind of fruit showing up in your life? Can other people, do you think think other people can look at your life and see the fruit of the Spirit and the good works that come from God to you, in you, and through you? Does that fruit show up in your life? I'm going to throw that hand grenade at you and then move on. Verse 3, Jesus says, Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. So abide in me, and I in you. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're already clean. He showed up and, and with, with them this night, and he showed them that, that what, what he's saying is true because he washed their feet. He cleaned them right at the front of the dinner before they, had, they sat down, telling them, you don't clean yourself up so you can be accepted by Jesus. He comes to you, and he cleans you, and you're accepted. So he's, he says, if he's cleaned you and, he, and called on you, he's chosen you to be his disciples, he says, abide in me. Welcome me to abide in you. As I said earlier, the, the, the very first few sentences, abide means to stay. It means to dwell close by with, not departing to go or to live elsewhere. In more archaic, formal language, someone might refer to their home as my humble abode, the place I stay, the place I live. Right? This is where I'm at. This is where my life is centered. I've planted it. I've rooted my life here. Jesus says, you're my disciple, so make your home with me. Let me make my home with you. Let's get our lives on the same page, in the same place, in the same way, at the same time, going the same direction, in the same way, for the same purpose. And then he continues in verse 4. And five, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. 
Now, as, as, Christ, as a Christian, in fact, as a Christian pastor, one of the easiest things that I get mixed up over and I keep mix, getting mixed up over is this. Sorry. Who is the vine and who is the branch? I keep getting that mixed up. Who's the head and who's the body? Who's the master? Who's the servant? Who's the giver and who's the recipient? We are not the, I'm not the vine. I am not the source of my life and nutrients. I am not the causer of the fruit in my life. We can't make that fruit show up. The vine does that. The vine is who makes the fruit show up on the branches. So he says, you're the branch. You can't bear any fruit unless you abide in me in the vine. If you're not vitally, truly connected to me, you won't bear fruit. You might improve morally. You might become more disciplined, more organized. You might become more ethical, more productive. You might do a lot of good things, but it'll all be for yourself because you think you're the vine and not the branch because you're not connected to me, the true vine. It goes on in verse 5. He says, whoever abides in me and I in, in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's what it looks like. Let me, let me, let me for this. Here's what it looks like in my life, me. When I said a few minutes, minutes ago that we can get mixed up here. Here's the truth. I, I want to be the vine. I want to be the vine of my life. I want to be in control. I want to be the accomplisher. I say all the time, I don't need to be awesome. I really do want to be awesome. I want to be appreciated. I want to be admired. I want to, I want to be the difference maker. And in, in each of us, we demonstrate those, those needs, that, that thing. We're all showing this out, all of us in this room. And, and listen, even if I'm not outright trying to play, take the place of God in my life, this will sneak up on me through really good godly intentions. To, to still think of myself as the vine. Here's what I mean. I want to please Jesus. I want to please Jesus. I want to make him happy. I want to honor him. I want to love him. And so, with that, it transforms really quickly. I want to pay him back. I want to make him happy and proud that his choice in me is really paying off. I, I want him to never regret that he chose to love me, forgive me, and adopt me. And so I try to be a vine of my own. I try to be good and make him proud. I try to show him that I'm growing up, I'm maturing. Hey, Father in heaven, look, 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 see. What you, what you want from me is to mature and grow up. And so here I am. Look how independent. Look how, how, how less and less I have to call on you or need you. I'm growing up. I'm, 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 I'm like you. I'm independent. And that's where I've gone wrong. Because I'm trying to be the vine myself. I can draw, listen, I can draw a straight line. Recently I've been doing this spiritual, emotional work, actually. Anyhow, uh, which is, I can draw a straight line between my deep, deep and abiding sense of self-loathing and disappointment and shame and guilt. I can draw a straight line from how I feel in those ways straight back to me forgetting that I am the branch and I'm not the vine. Because I'm trying to be the vine and I stink. I want to be the vine. I want to be the difference maker. I want to grow things. I want to make things happen. I want to be better. I want to be stronger wiser, more dignified, more respectable, more organized, more disciplined, and on it, right? And I keep screwing that up because well, I can't bear the weight of being the vine. And it kills me with shame, self-loathing, disappointment, other people's disappointment in me, and what I'm sure is God's disappointment in me. But Jesus is pleased with me. He's proud of me. He's most, and he's only glorified and honored in me when I remember that I'm a branch and that anything good that he expects to bear out in this life 
comes from him and through him and by him. He's glorified and honored when branches depend on him, the true vine, for life and fruit, right? So he says in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and they're burned. Now, I don't, I don't have time to get into it, but you can find it on Spotify as well. We spent about a year and a half on Revelation. But God is very clear on this, what he means. There are people who are in him. He loves, and they have loved him, and they're his. And there are people who are not in him. And they do not love him. And I want to make very clear. The two categories there are very stark contrasts. And, and, the, and the people who are the branches that are gathered up for the fire, they are people who don't simply outright stand in hateful opposition. I don't like God. I'm an atheist. I hate Jesus. Get your Bible out of here. Blah, blah, blah. No prayer in schools. All that, right? There's those people. But do you know who joins them as branches? The people who think that God's okay with them being apathetic or neutral. The people who go, no, listen, I'm not at war with God. I don't hate him. No reason for him to hate me then. Right? We're at peace. I don't hate him. It's the branches who know about Jesus and simply like him. Consider him. They think he's wise. They think God is he's a good idea. Many things he's got, oh, those are good precepts. Those are good philosophies. That's a good way to live, a lot of that stuff. These are good ideas. You should, you should consider those. Jesus equates those sorts of thoughts and feelings in the same category as those who hate him. Now, he says in verse 7 and 8, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, here we go, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. By this you will glorify my Father. By being a disciple of Jesus, Truly, ultimately connected to him, the vine, depending on him for your every need, depending upon, upon him to satisfy every essential desire, and then producing the spiritual fruit that serves as evidence that you're his disciples. So now, we've gotten back to where we started, verse 8. And I want to point out that there's a lot of ways, there's a lot of really great ways to define disciple. So what we're going we're gonna to try and do together, uh, what I want to lead us in, it's not the best way, the, the universal way. I just, I just think, I, I find a lot of confidence that this might ought to should be our way. The best way for us as a church. Here's how, here's how I want us to begin and, and capture and hold on to the, the definition of what a disciple is. A disciple, you'll see it on the screens, a disciple is one who stays with Jesus. A disciple abides in him. Right? So, um, this pivotal word stays, it's, it's capitalized because I, I want it to serve as an acronym for how we understand what a disciple is. Let me, let me run you through the, the elements of this definition that we get from this acronym. Stays. A disciple stays with Jesus. S, which is today, a disciple surrenders to Jesus. T, a disciple is transformed by Jesus. You're saved and changed, not to become better, but new by Jesus. And you become an agent of that change in the world around you. A, a disciple abides in Jesus. The heart of this definition. Why? A disciple yields to the spirit of Jesus. A disciple yields, obeys, trusts and obeys the, the spirit of God. And then S, a disciple serves in community. I initially was thinking and toying with, uh, with surrounds themselves with community. But I think if that's the only place we stay, which you've got to surround yourself with community if you're a disciple, a community of believers. But if that's where it stops, it can get really self-serving and consumeristic. And then that defeats the whole idea of like you're supposed to bear spiritual fruit, which God gives to you for the sake of others, right? So a disciple serves in community. Now, a disciple stays with Jesus. So I want to spend the rest of our time together and just, and just dive into what this means. A disciple surrenders to Jesus. That's not a word our culture or society likes at all. And even for people who say, oh, no, I, I surrender to Jesus. We really get down to the root of our hearts and minds, and we take a look at our real lives. We don't want to surrender to Jesus. You're going to have to go with me on this one and just confess alongside of me. 
I don't want to surrender. Nevertheless, that's the first most crucial step that a disciple takes. And it's one of the most crucial steps that a disciple will continue to take throughout their life is continuing surrender to Jesus. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branch. Apart from me, you can't do anything. The word surrender isn't used there, right? But, but the heart and the activity of surrender is put on display throughout this passage, right? You have to depend on him. You have to let go of self. You have to surrender your own will and your own need to control and determine your life and your boundaries and your rules and your path and your values. You have to, you have to, you have to give all that up and surrender it to Jesus and take his yoke upon you. You have to surrender your need for independence to determine what your life is about and where your future is going to be. You have to surrender your religious half measures. You have to surrender your spiritual hedged bets, treating Jesus like a resource or a coach. That's what You have to surrender that. You have to give that up. If you're a disciple, that's what's going to happen. That's what, you can't escape it. See, you have to surrender, you have to surrender to and live with Jesus as the source of your life, not simply a resource for your life. You have to surrender to the idea that Jesus isn't a coach that helps you make your life better, but he's the king who saves your life and has authority over it, and he's a good king and loves you. A disciple is someone who's given up their desperate need and their desire to be the vine, and they trust Jesus, and they accept their branchness. I know what a lot of us are thinking, possibly. Maybe, if, even if you're not thinking this, maybe somewhat subtly, it, this thought has a just a subtle feeling under it. That's not what I want to do. I think most of us are ready to say it. Oh, I surrender to Jesus. There's a great hymn. I surrender all. I surrender. I remember seeing that a million times a Sunday in my church that I grew up in, right? What does our society and culture preach to us? What's the ethos when it comes to this word surrender? There's a great Jean-Claude Van Damme movie from the 80s. That's terrible, but it's so great. It's called No Retreat, No Surrender. No Retreat, No Surrender. That, that sounds like it plays really well in a martial arts movie, maybe in Cobra Kai or Rocky. It sounds like it really ought to play well in the locker room at halftime for a football team or a basketball team, Right? Nevertheless, this is one of the most crucial things that has to happen in your life for your salvation and for your joy. Each and every one of us, this is the battle. This is the fight for our existence, for our joy. And the only way you lay hold of victory, the only way you lay hold of victory in this fight is by losing it. Why? Because we're born fighting against Jesus fighting against and denying that he's the vine, instead of going, I'm the branch. These things out here are the branch, are the vine. I'm the vine. I'm not a branch. Your eternal victory in this war is won by surrendering to Jesus. That's how you win. But surrender feels like losing. In some ways, it is. I often said that the only thing that God intends to rob or steal from you is that which is killing you. That's all he wants to rob from you. You know what? He doesn't want to take happiness or joy or peace or comfort or security or safety from you. That's, that's what he wants to bring to you. You won't receive that from him if you haven't surrendered to him. Now here's, here's a, a sneaky little lie that your soul is telling you. And my, my soul tells me this lie all the time too. I can't surrender. I can't give up. It's too scary. It's too humiliating. I can't be joyful. I can't be secure. It only feels like loss. It only feels like being hemmed in. It only feels like being caged. To be surrendered, to be, to be put spiritually in a jail cell and have someone else, I have to submit the way I think and what I want and what I want to do with my life and where I'm headed. I don't want to give that up. I'm not sure I can trust anyone to do it my way 
in the way that's going to serve me best. Here's the lie. You and I are already surrendered to something or someone. It's not that you can't surrender. You won't surrender. You already have. I have. That's the sneaky little lie. I can't surrender. You already have, man. It's not a matter of whether you're going to surrender to someone or something that's going to have control or power of your life. It's a matter of who or what you have surrendered to. That's the truth. I guarantee you there is something or someone in your life that you're depending upon to give you joy, to give you security, to give your life meaning, to justify your existence. There is something or someone that you have surrendered control to, you, to your life to give you safety, comfort, <laughs> approval. You're counting on someone, depending upon someone in a vine branch way to ensure you that you are loved, that you're accepted, that you matter, that you're going to be okay, that you're pretty, that you're handsome, that you're admired, that you're included. We surrender to career money. We surrender our lives. And we devote, we devote our schedule, our time, our energy, our bandwidth. We take all of that from other people and things and we pour it into surrender to our career or money because those things promise us safety and comfort and even the illusion that we can control our lives and destinies. We surrender to careers or hobbies because success and achievement in those places is going to justify my life. It's going to show that I matter, that I can do something, that I'm worth something. It's going gonna, it's gonna to give me, I'm going to earn with that thing that I'm surrounded, this career that I'm surrounded to. It's, it's going to earn me respect. It's going to grant me control. We surrender to our lifestyle dreams, both now and in the future. Some of us are closer to that future than others, but we surrender to our lifestyle dreams and visions because those things promise to give us the rest and the comfort the leisure, and simply the life of peace and happiness that we believe we've earned. We surrender these things in such a way that we would refuse and often do. We would refuse Jesus' command to love him and abide in him and obey him and bear fruit, his fruit. We'll deny him. We'll refuse to surrender to him because we have already got something or someone that we've surrendered to. And as long as you'll let yourself consider Jesus' authority, as long as you can sit under the preached word or sit down with your Bible and face in truth and reality what God is actually saying and take him for what he means, as long as you can simply consider but not submit, you're still trying to be a vine of your own. You're willing to, act, to accept a bit of branchness, but you're still going to be your own vine. And Jesus says, apart from him, you're still just a branch. But you're the kind of branch now that has no life. You're not connected to him. You can't bear fruit. It's worth nothing. That sort of branch, refusing to believe it's anything but its own vine, Jesus says in that verse, in the end, you'll be gathered up along with all the other branches not connected to me, and you'll be tossed in the fire. And that's not simply or mainly because Jesus doesn't want to be connected to you, but because you didn't want to be connected to him. Those branches get what they always wanted. I don't want to surrender and be connected to you and depend on you. I want to handle this on my own. And I'll take your help. I'll consider your advice. But I'm the vine. He's going to go, okay, well, you don't want to be connected to me. I'll give you what you want. There's a time and a place where finally, you don't want to be connected to me. Okay. I'll give you what you want. I want, to, I want to help you. I want to fight for your joy by telling you the truth, so please let me persuade you. Not one of those needs or desires that are, they're not sinful. None of them are, except for one. The need and desire to be your own vine. All the rest of those wants and desires, Jesus says, depend on me, surrender to me. I designed and created you with those needs and desires. Abide in me. I'll abide in you. And you'll glorify me as I satisfy and meet your needs and desires. 
but not a single one of those false, those false vines that we, you and I surrender to, none of them will give us life to only take, from, take life from us. And not a single one of them will ever die for you to give you life, except this one true vine. Jesus says, I am the true vine. So any of these other things that we surrender to and attach ourselves to, they, they're a false vine. I tell you this, your faith is defined by what you surrender to. That's your God. The Bible calls it idolatry, but that's your God. Whatever you surrender your life to, whatever you can't lay before the feet of Jesus and trust him as to whether he decides to take it from you and or burn it up right in front of your face and put something else that you really weren't looking for, that's your God. It's defined by whatever you're surrendered to. I want you to think of three people here, two people who are with Jesus on this night in John chapter 15 that he's talking to, saying all this vine stuff to. One is Peter. P Peter is a professional fisherman raised in fishing. He's a pro. One night he's out fishing, and he's just met Jesus recently, and he's caught nothing all night long. It's a bad night. Comes up to the shore, and Jesus walks up. He goes, hey, hey, back it up, back it up. Put your nets over on the other side, and you'll catch something. And Peter's like, Jesus, you're, uh, okay, yeah, master, you're a rabbi. Uh, you're not really a fisherman. Um, I'm a professional. And then he goes, okay, tell you what, um, I, because you said it, I'll do it. Okay? All right. All right. Takes the boat back out, puts the net over, net over on the other side, obeys Jesus, and the haul is so big that he has to call in another boat crew to help him pull it in. When he gets back to shore and has this follow-up conversation with Jesus, do you know what he does? He falls to his knees and goes, you need to get away from me. I'm an evil man. I am wicked. I am dirty. I don't want you to be around me because you are so great, you ought not to be around me. You know what Jesus says? He says, uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. But I'm, gonna, I'm doing something about that. I'm, I'm, I'm about to make you something that you are, actually aren't. I'm going to make you fishermen. I'm going I'm to let you join me. I'm going to make you my friend. I'm going I'm to put you on my mission. It's going to be great. See, like, Peter doesn't simply have to, like, surrender his knowledge and expertise professionally as a fisherman, as he obeys Jesus. He has to surrender his very true, it's real, he's right. He has to surrender his identity that he's filthy and wicked and disgusting and horrible, and he's in the presence of God, and he doesn't deserve to be. He has to surrender that and trust Jesus, and it goes that when Jesus says, no, you're with me. Oh, I'm, making, I'm about to make you something that you are not. But you're right, that's what you are. Now stick with me, come with me. There's another disciple there that night listening to Jesus. His name is Matthew. He's a tax collector. Not enough time for me to really get into the history, historicity of what a tax collector was. Suffice it to say, this wasn't simply like some scumbag who works for the IRS, right? Matthew was the kind of person that in that time, all the people who hated him, despised him, were disgusted and condemned him. They were right. Because Matthew was the worst. He made a career out of this, all right? Being the worst. And Jesus shows up and he goes, hey, follow me, Matthew. Uh, me, tax collector? Yeah, you're Jesus. You're like this great rabbi. You're supposed to be like maybe some people are saying you're the Messiah. It's like, uh-huh, follow me. Quit your job, follow me. And Matthew does. Now listen, Matthew, Matthew doesn't just simply surrender his job. He ends up having to surrender an identity. I'm filthy. I'm the worst. I don't belong with a guy like this. And, and so Matthew takes Jesus back to his house for dinner, and he invites all of his tax collector friends. Why them? Because that's the only friends he's got. Right? And Jesus sits down to dinner with him at his house, and he, and he starts to tell him about uh, sin, but also grace and confession and repentance and salvation and, and forgiveness. And, and all, the, all the religious elites, the, the, the preachers and teachers and rabbis and all, like they find out and they're, like they start, they start really grumbling and complaining about Jesus because he's hanging out with those kind of people, right? And you know what Jesus says? He, he, he looks at them and he, uh, I love it, the way Jesus says it. He says, hey, you guys, you, tack, uh, you Pharisees, you religious guys who know all the Bible and stuff. He says, hey, why don't you go and learn what this means? He says that, by the way. He goes, Hey, uh, rabbis who've memorized the first five books of the Bible, why don't you go and learn this? 
And then he, then he quotes to them the Torah, which is something they were supposed to have already learned and they're experts in. Why don't you go and learn this? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have come for the unrighteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners, right? What do we take from that? Listen, religious people don't think they ought, they have to or need to surrender to Jesus because they've got their, they've got their good works. They follow the Ten Commandments. They don't smoke and they don't drink and they don't cuss and they don't watch R-rated movies and they don't watch Game of Thrones and they vote the right way or they recycle and they're sweet to people who are not white and they put the proper banners on their Facebook page and Twitter and they're an ally of all the oppressed. I don't need to submit to Jesus. Why would I need that? Submit to Jesus for my good? Well, I already got a lot of good here. I'm doing pretty good. Religious people don't think they need to surrender to Jesus. So I'd, I'd say there, there is a, a really high likelihood, I won't give you a statistical chance, but uh, it's an incredibly high likelihood that there is someone here today who needs to surrender yourself to Jesus today and hand over your self-justifying credit for your own good. Well, I delayed gratification, and I made wise choices, and I didn't get pregnant in high school and saddle myself with a baby, and I worked really hard and put myself through college, and I did this, and I was wise, and I obeyed the Lord. Probably one who needs to surrender to Jesus and lay that before his feet and beg mercy and receive mercy and depend on him, the true vine, for your justification. For a moment, the third person I want you to consider is a person who wasn't at this table because he wasn't a, he wasn't a disciple. But the key is, this guy was someone who said he wanted to become a disciple of Jesus. The, we, we call him the rich young ruler. There's this moment in the Gospels where this young, handsome, attractive, wealthy, and good guy shows up to meet Jesus. Every, pillar of the community. Everyone in this scene, everyone knew this guy. He was important, okay? And he walks up to Jesus and goes, hey, rabbi, good teacher. Hey, listen, what do I need to do? Uh, what, what do I got to do to be part of your kingdom? I've done all the other stuff that God's law says. So is there any missing, anything missing on my schedule, on my resume, on my report card? Anything? Because I want, hey, I'm a T-crosser and an I-dotter, right? What else, what else else missing? Because, hey, I'll do what you say, Jesus, right? And Jesus goes, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, cool, that's easy. All you need to do is sell all your stuff, quit your job, give the proceeds to the poor, follow me. That's all you got to do. Jesus tells him to surrender his money, surrender his good reputation and good works, surrender his big, good, well-earned standing in the community, surrender your uh, retirement plan, your nest egg, your dreams for what you're going to do when it's time to Call it quits and take it easy. Give all that up. Follow me. You don't know where I'm going. You don't know where I'm going to take you. Follow me. Listen, by the way, I just want to say, you can have wealth and follow Jesus. The rich young ruler's problem is not that he's rich. But you can't have Jesus and your money have you. Right? What's this guy do? He does the work. In his head, I have to give up what I've given myself to. I gotta surrender what I've surrendered to. I gotta surrender that to you. What happens in the Bible? He, the Bible tells us that this York young he goes away and he doesn't become a disciple, and all of his money's in his bank. Keeps his career, he's got a solid, comfortable retirement plan, and the Bible says a sorrowful heart. A sorrowful heart. I'm like you. I know what this feels like, the idea of surrender. To be told to surrender feels like pressure. It feels like being shut down. You know, you, you, have, you have been surrendered to some, something or some, and someone has forced you into surrender at some point. I know this is scary. Can I just give you a different illustration just for a second? Pause from the vine stuff. Different illustration of how Jesus views this whole activity of you surrendering to him. 
I have a good, dear, close, longtime friend named Kirk McDonald. He pastors another Acts 29 church in Fayetteville, okay? He grew up raising and training and riding horses, all right? He's really annoying because he does everything he does, he's like, he's really good at, okay? Um, but over the years, I've learned about what he's interested in, and I, I like to ask people questions about what they do and stuff. So I asked, how do you, how do you like, train a horse, like, like a wild horse? Like, they've never had a saddle, they're wild, and, you know, how do you get them to, like, do what you want? He goes, oh, that, yeah, I can tell you all about that. He says, there are two ways. Now, the old way, the way that we've done it for a long time is what we call breaking a horse. Here's what you got to do. You have to, you have to get the horse and you have to pen it up in a corral. Not a big one, a smaller one, right? And you got to rope it. And maybe if you want a saddle, you can like shove it on there and like force it on. But then you got to get on that horse and you got to let it buck and kick and run and make all these crazy, scary sounds. You got to stay on it until it tires out and gets the picture that you're in charge, right? And a lot of the time, you have to take the rope, put it and bit in the mouth, right, and control it. And often, you got to break that horse. you got to drag him to the ground and hold him down, maybe whip him until that horse realizes that it can't do anything unless you let it. It's got to learn you're the boss. And then the horse is broke. That's the old way, he says. But the new way, like very few people really break horses now. The new way is this kind of horse whispery thing, which is something I've seen this in real life happen. It's what's, instead of breaking a horse, it's called starting a horse. You get the horse in the corral, but you get in a nice big one, and you take your time, and you talk to it sweetly and gently, and you pay attention to the signs and signals of its nervousness and anxiety, and you're patient with it, and you coach it, and you show it that you mean it no harm. You deal with it kindly. You want to be its master, so you show it that it can treat you like a friend, too. You teach the safe that it's safe and it's good for it to partner with you. And, and horses are herd animals, so they need cleared leadership. So you got to lead them by a rope, but try your best to kind of keep it slack and not be pulling on it and tugging on it, right? You're not spooking them a bunch and you're, fr- you're gentle, but you're firmly leading it around the crowd. And before you ever put a saddle on it and ride it and start making it do work, you show it that it's good to trust and follow you because you know what you're doing. You know where you're going. You know what a horse needs. When it comes to surrender, Jesus is not a breaker. He's a starter. He's a starter. Gentle and lowly, trustworthy, kind, patient, merciful. And he's calling on you to surrender because he loves you. I'm going to take a moment here clarify. Uh, a lot of this, most of this, has been talking about the initial step of surrender, talk conversion when you become a Christian. But listen, that's, that's not a step that you do and take and then you got it handled for the rest of your life. Because if you are a Christian and you really are grafted in and attached to the true vine and you are one of his branches, then this is a step you continually take, cycling through, surrendering to Jesus daily. But here's the good news. You already know that step. If you're a Christian, you already know that step. You don't have to learn something new. You just practice what you've done and you get better at it. Surrendering to Jesus constantly, daily. So I want you to consider again, what have you been surrendering to? The step you need to take is the step you've already taken before. Just take it again. You lay it down and trust Jesus that you can depend on him. And you'll, you can go anywhere or do anything he tells you scary or not, a big change that you didn't really want to do, you had something else in mind. You can surrender that and trust him that he knows where you need to go. If I haven't said enough, hopefully, to encourage and relieve you today of the burdens maybe that you are carrying, I want to end with this. Jesus says that branches connected to him will bear fruit. That's how you know you're his disciple. But what about, what about if you haven't been bearing fruit lately and you know you've surrendered to Jesus and you have at some point clearly been abiding him? There really is spiritual fruit that you can point back in your life. There, there's spiritual fruit there. Other people can testify. Yeah, you've borne spiritual fruit. But man, it feels like winter's shown up. It's been a minute since you've seen a green life-proofing bud on your branch and it's killing you, worried that 
disappointing Jesus, you're doubting, you're wondering if, even if you are part, attached to the vine. You've been fighting, trying to cling to what you know because what you feel doesn't jive with what you know. I want to take you back up to John 15 to a place that for a long, long, long time has scared the crap out of me. But now, just this week, preparing for this sermon, God was so kind to me. I want his kindness like to show up for you here too, right? Used to scare me, and now I love it. I used to think that verse six was the continuation of verse two. You're like, I don't remember what those are. Let me take you back there. Verse six, I'll just summarize it. Verse six says that if you're a branch that doesn't want to be connected to me, if you don't want to surrender to that life that comes through me, Jesus says, you'll be gathered up with all the branches that are like that. You'll die. I'll throw you in the fire. I used to think that was a continuation of verse two. What does verse two say? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, my father, the vine dresser, takes away. But every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Do you see how those two are not the same sorts of branches? And, and the vine dresser does two different things with two different branches. Every branch that is in me, Jesus says, you really are connected to me. Every branch that really is connected to me, surrendered to me, dependent upon me, when you don't bear fruit, what happens? God the, fi- God the Father, the vine dresser, he takes you away. But you have to understand what that means because uh, the English translation here is, it's accurate, but it's not helpful. It, in the original language, what he means, this, this, you're taken away, what he's saying is you're lifted up. He lifts you up. So like take away and lift up, how is that the same thing? Okay, think of an athlete on the field. Like they're worn out, they're depleted, maybe they bust their knee, right? What's a good coach do? You can't play, you can't score, you're not going to do any good out there on the field. What's the good coach do? Send someone out with a stretcher and lifts them up and takes them away. Where? Off the field to a surgeon or a helper, someone who can heal them, help them. Why? So they can produce fruit again. But you can't right now. The coach understands. The vine dresser understands. Every vine that is in me that does not bear fruit, they're taken up. He takes them away. He takes them up. So I learned such weird esoteric things as I learned about what I'm preaching about. So I learned a lot about vine stuff. Do you know what a vine dresser does? When he comes to his vineyard and he finds a branch that has fallen off the trellis that it's hanging on, it's no longer intertwined with the other branches, and it's fallen down, it's now on the ground. Do you know what he finds? He finds a branch that's covered, leaves are covered in mud. They can't get light on them. They can't have photosynthesis. There's mites and bugs and fungi, right? It's likely to get eaten by animals and stuff. Do you know what the the vine dresser does? He takes it away, but he doesn't take it away and pull it off the vine. He he lifts it up and he gently, gently, why? Because it's unhealthy and broken and messed up. He wipes the mud off the leaves so it can get light again. He, he removes all the ticks and the fungi, cleans it off, and then he gently weaves it back into the other branches through the trellis so that it can bear fruit again. Maybe you're in a season where you're not feeling like you're bearing fruit. You're, it's hard for you to see the Lord doing much with you. I want you to know that God, your Father, because you are connected to his Son, he's the vine dresser. And he lifts you up. He washes you so you can bear fruit. And he understands. And he's gentle and lowly, just like his Son. To those of us who are bearing fruit, Jesus assure you, assures you, oh, hey, hey, cool, you're doing great. I'm going to prune you. Let me help you out, by the way, and, and warn you off what I need to be warned off from. Sometimes I may either underestimate or misjudge the fruit I'm bearing or not see it or not really be bearing much fruit. And so I think I just need to hold, get a hold of the shears and cut myself off because I know the vine dresser is going to cut me off anyhow. Let me save him the work. This is what I deserve. Lay down the shears. That's not your job. He prunes, not you. You can stay with the Lord because he stays with you. And you, can, you can and you will persevere because Jesus perseveres and preserves with you. 
verses 9 through 11, he says, Father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and I live, I dwell in his love. And he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. My joy may be in you. And that your joy that comes from me will be full. So I leave you, say, abide in Christ. Stay in him. And he tells us this. He commands all of this today. So that what? So his joy will be in you. And your joy will be full. Jesus fights for your joy. And that's why we make our guarantee to one another as members here that we'll fight for one another's joy. So we do it by going, hey, surrender to Jesus. First time, every time, all the time. I mean, they call on us to respond to the Lord in communion, what we call communion.